Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with social worker and adoption advocate Katie Perkins on what it means to be adoption competent. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here again from Chaddock. And actually, the day that I am recording this podcast, which is November 1st, is the four-year birthday of the podcast. So we have been at this for four years and thank you for being on that journey with us and for your listenership. So today's guest, I'm so excited to introduce Katie Perkins. And Katie is going to be speaking to us about what is adoption competency. So let me tell you a little bit about Katie. She is an LCSWS, so that's licensed clinical social worker and supervisor in Texas. She's in private practice. She provides therapy, professional training, case consultation, and policy analysis in Colorado, Florida, Illinois, Texas, and North Carolina. Katie specializes in family separation, sexual and domestic violence, cultural competence, and childhood trauma. She is also a founding board member of STAR, which stands for Support Texas Adoptee Rights, and a member of the Texas Association Against Sexual Assault, the Texas Council for Family Violence, the National Association of Social Workers, and Adoption Knowledge Affiliates. Her experience also includes community, state, and national advocacy as a leader and a volunteer. And Katie has been united with her first family for more than 20 years. So she is coming at this conversation, both with lived experience as an adopted person, with clinical experience, and also with an interest in policy, which you often don't find clinicians who are also interested in policy. I think um, that's a wonderful combination to have in one person. So stay tuned and you will be able to hear from Katie and what she has to say in just a minute. Katie, welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Thank you for being here again. You're very welcome. You know, so last week, as we were wrapping up, we were talking about that some of the typical skills that you would use in therapy with someone, you know, you gave the example of um, an adopted person. We were talking about adoption across the lifespan. And so things can come up in marriage. Things could come up with your first pregnancy. Things could come up with the loss of, you know, someone, whatever. Mm -hmm. And how you were giving examples of how people wouldn't think of, you know, saying if, if maybe someone's feeling 
the sadness of the loss of their mother when they become a mother. And it would seem obvious to us not to say, well, that shouldn't matter. You know, she died a long time ago. Just suck it up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not a good idea. (laughs) But there's an element you seem to be suggesting that happens around these issues with adopted persons. Yeah. Unfortunately it does because I've had people come to me and tell me they've been told these things by other professionals. Um, They've been told things like you're making it about race and it really isn't. Um, That's not really that big of a deal. I'm sure they didn't mean it that way. Um, I think you really need to try to understand where they're coming from um, without dealing with how the adopted person is feeling about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a wide spectrum of comments. So maybe somebody that it's a transracial adoption and the therapist is saying to them, you're making it about race when it shouldn't be. Right. Um, I've, I've heard that quite a bit, actually. Um, you know, well, I, I don't really think your parents meant it that way, or I don't really think your employer or whoever meant it that way. Um, I think you're kind of playing a race card here, and that's not really what this is about. Or do you think you're making maybe a bigger deal out of it than it is? And again, there's really no situation where it would be appropriate to say something like that. If you as a, as a therapist thought your client was overreacting to something, um, you would explore what led them to have the reaction they did. Tell me how you felt when this person said that to you. Mm-hmm. Have you ever felt this way before? Has anyone ever said anything like that to you before? How did you feel about it last time? What happened after you said X, Y, Z? How did the person respond? You'd explore the interaction. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't say, I think you're making a big deal out of it. That's just really mm-hmm. not appropriate in any circumstance. Yes. So I would suspect in some of those situations, people, there's something about adoption. Yes, that's what I'm separation, right? Yeah, people start to come from their own understanding, their own personal understanding of it, or what they've experienced of it, like, say, um, well, maybe my sister adopted a child and I've seen what it was like for them and they don't have any problems. And there's something about this issue that I hear that a lot. Um, I talked to someone recently who's a student in a classroom whose professor was talking about adoption and saying things specifically based on what their own colleagues as adopted adoptive parents had experienced and Mm -hmm. only speaking from that perspective. But we wouldn't do that with anything else. We we may, I could be being too broad with that, but from from where I sit, I don't typically see people saying that about other issues. Like for example, if you are teaching a class and you had a family member die by suicide, is is what you say going to be somewhat infused by your own experience? Of course, but you wouldn't start saying like, um, you know, suicide is a selfish death, even if you have that feeling about mm-hmm. your family member, which sub conversation around how that's not a, an appropriate thing to say. It's much more complicated than that. Um, people are suffering and they, and they think their only out is to die. Um, but we, we bring to the adoption world, I think more of our personal experience in personal experience is not enough it can help, 
It can give you a lens through which to look. It might help you relate to people for, for some clinicians. Um, and some clinicians, it might harm their clients. I've seen that as well. But it gives you a place to start in a different way than someone who's not experienced it. Uh, but it's not enough in and of itself to say, this is an issue that I specialize in. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking a lot about also the, how can I articulate this? There is a very strong uh, cultural, I don't even know if the cultural is the right word, societal investment in being pro-adoption. And this is a solution and this is a good thing. And this is a way for someone to create a family. And I wonder sometimes how much that is influencing some of what you're describing. Well, and, and part of that is, is if you look back historically to how adoption really became an institution and how it was yes. marketed, yes. Uh, this is where we could have a whole other day I about I the harm that professionals have done um, in how we approach it and the kind of the theoretical frameworks that we were using. So if you go back to when we first really first started pushing adoption as like a, a systematically available option, um, say uh, towards the end of the baby boom, when it was really picking up, uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, we really used to talk about it as professionals as a win-win-win. You've got a, a woman who has, quote unquote, a problem, which is the pregnancy or the child. And the ultimate goal at that time was to make her remarriageable. So in order to do that, we needed to get rid of the problem. We also have this childless couple who is desperate to have a child. And so we're going to fix their problem by giving them a baby and a baby who maybe was born without a father with this stigma of bastardy and placing that child with a, a good loving family. Um, and that is how it was packaged and marketed. Everybody wins. There's no discussion or even conceptualization of it being a traumatic or loss-based event. Just everyone's better off. And that's our roots in this world. And we still feel the effects of that mentality today. I mean, I certainly encounter people who think literally the same thing about it now. So when that's where we started from, that kind of explains how we got to where we are and that we're still fighting a lot of that mentality that there are good times maybe in this family, right? But it's complicated. And just because maybe you get confused about your identity or you feel sadness or loss, or uh, maybe your adoptive parents like gotcha day and you don't, that doesn't mean anything. Um, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It means you're just having natural responses to what you've experienced in much the same way that, you know, I would talk to someone who maybe is not adopted, but maybe is a rape survivor. Mm -hmm. If you tell me they can't sleep and they both want to be around people for protection and yet want to be isolated and they feel really hypervigilant and they're just waiting for the other shoe to drop and they don't know how they're going to go back to work. I would tell this person, you're a normal person experiencing extraordinary circumstances. 
all of your responses to this are normal. It's going to take time for this to subside and it's going to take work. And we're going to work together to try to get through this. It's the same thing. These are normal responses to extraordinary circumstances and people normally need support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts about um, programs that are, I want to ask you about two things, programs that are teaching clinicians to become adoption competent. Mm -hmm. And then your thoughts, I know you have some thoughts about lived experience and how that can be a helpful piece of things, but it's not enough to just to only have that in this work. So, you know, it has been brought up, you know, I have that attachment based therapist Facebook group and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's been brought up before is, Calling yourself adoption competent, um, almost is that arrogant? Should we even be saying that? You know, if you're not adopted or you're not a first parent or adopted, you know. So tell, like, let's open that whole Pandora's yeah. box of adoption competency training programs. Yeah, um, I think there's no conclusion. There will never be a conclusion to that <laughs> that discussion. Um, there's because I think there's no objective definition for it. I right. think it's on a spectrum, just like anything else. I am an adopted person, but that does not make me adoption competent. However, I've been involved in this world since I was like 18. You know, I've been working in this arena as a volunteer, peer support, community organizing, um, all of that long before I even became a professional social worker. So there's that plus lived experience, plus all the training I've done, uh, plus the training I've provided, you know, do I consider myself adoption competent? Yes. But there's a lot of caveats to that. Like, um, I, I do work with first parents or birth parents sometimes, but that's also really its own specialization. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's not my main population. So Mm -hmm. even within this adoption competent, idea. There's going to be a lot of other specific areas, a lot of other niche areas where people might specialize. Um, I think if you're looking for training programs around the idea of adoption competence, you should pay attention to how many adopted people are involved, um, not just now, but in the past. Uh, and, And I know that sometimes that information is hard to obtain for outsiders, but Uh, with some work, you can find out how involved have they been in the creation of the training? How involved are they in the administration of the training? And uh, sometimes a a bigger, more widely known training is not necessarily better because it depends on what their focus is. Um, You know, there is a lot of talk about TBRI and there's emerging discussion in in the adoptee community from adult adopted people who experienced being treated with TBRI, treated isn't the right word, but I I think you know what I mean, as youth and coming out later as adults and saying they, they didn't care for it. It made them uncomfortable. It didn't feel like it respected their autonomy. So having a recognition that there's a whole you know, there's a bazillion ways. There's a lot of theories. There's a lot of interventions. There's a lot of trainings. Um, but looking at who, how involved were the people who would experience it themselves? How involved have they been in that 
that training. Um, I do host a training series around adoption competence. I have a basic training that's about two hours and then a lot of additional, I'm coming up with some pre-recorded versions for the rest of the year around, um, you know, more detailed aspects such as DNA discoveries, um, cultural competence, transracial adoption, racial identity development, historical perspectives, like we talked about the other day regarding uh, obtaining records, those sorts of things. So, um, you know, I certainly have some options available, uh, but I, I think it's important to pay attention to not only who are they marketing to, but who's administering it and who helped create it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I certainly don't want to give anyone listening the impression that I'm like anti-adoption competence training programs. I mean, I think they, the impetus for those was good. Like, yeah, gotta realize there's some unique features here. People like, like, Hey, know some of this. So I, Oh, like, I, I, I think that's good, but I think what you're also saying is important that they're not quite, nothing is fully adequate or complete. Like you have to keep learning. You have to be aware. Um, I'll sometimes see somebody that will say, well, I'm, I trained in such and such the TAC pro as TAC program or something as are the authority now in the discussion. Just, right. Right. It just right. Kind of makes me chuckle. Inside. Yeah. It's helpful. Like, yeah. That's great. I'm so glad to know that you did that, but what else have you been exposed to? Some other examples would be if you go to a conference that's quote unquote about adoption or family separation, and you see that, you know, more than 75% of the presenters are not adopted people or not former fosteries. Be mm. concerned. Um, there needs to be a more widely represented voice um, in these environments when the entire conference is theoretically, in some, for some conferences, supposed to be about the experience of the adopted person. Um, right. You want the person who it affects to be speaking. So, uh, or the same holds true for race and culture. So if 90% of your presenters are white, there needs to be some diversi- diversification happening there because adoption affects a whole range of people. Uh, not just white folks <laughs> and people from other country, intercountry adoption, transracial adoption. Um, there needs to be better representation from the, the, the people who are being quote unquote treated. So it's one thing if you're at a parenting conference, I can see there being more adoptive parents presenting, but even then, wouldn't you want to see some adult adopted people talk about what the experience was like of being parented in certain ways? Theoretically, yes. <laughs> I hope you wouldn't mm-hmm. want to hear those voices represented in those environments. So um, it's important to pay attention to those things. What are the whose voice is really being represented? Well, and just re- amplifying what you're saying, I know that there's been a lot of discussion in um, you know circles that are. Um, where adult adoptees are speaking and talking and writing and um, that it's really been heavily focused on the parent and the therapist's ideas and almost imposing this on the adopted person thinking we know what's best or, or, and that is, I, I think a lot a lot of what you're saying is that um, we have to elevate the voice of 
um, the adopted person. And there's so much out there available, like workshops you just mentioned and places that where people are writing and talking about this, mm-hmm. that there's really no excuse to not be exposing yourself to that if you claim expertise in working in adoption. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And um, historically, the, the voices of adopted people are not the voices that are elevated. Um, you know, how many times have I had a colleague that will say, you know, I, I went to this conference, I was asked to be on a panel, and I found out I was the only adopted person in any workshop for the whole conference. So it's more than just representing the voices, it's not being tokenized. Um, it's not always expecting adopted people, especially clinicians who are also adopted to participate for the purpose of sharing their personal story. Um, we have a lot to offer in expertise that is not our personal story. And a lot of times historically I've seen that happen where the adopted person is asked to participate, um, in such a way that positions, uh, them to be like the sob story. You know, so the people in the audience can feel good about what they're doing or mm. feel good about the decisions they're making or the interventions they're implementing to say, see, it worked for this person, which is not always it's it's as with the entire idea of adoption. It's more complicated than that. And so allowing those individual not allowing, I shouldn't say, but giving them the platform right. to speak authentically about complicated experiences Mm-hmm. Um, to not to not uh, tokenize their personal experience as someone to feel sorry for um, or to have been rescued. See, they mm-hmm. turned out great. I know mm-hmm. we experience that a lot and to really make them an authentic part of the discussion. Yeah. Yes. Well, I could imagine some folks that are listening um, maybe Maybe they are adopted themselves. Maybe they work in this area and um, consider this a specialty area, but you're opening their eyes to some things. Um, What if a person, whether it's you want to refer to someone or somebody hearing this, even for themselves, what if you can't find a clinician who specializes or if they have a really long waiting list, you know, what, what can you do in the meantime? Well, first I'll mention the waiting list uh, because I, I've, I've been struggling with that darn waiting list all this whole past week, <laughs> conversations with my intern team about what to do about it and how to divvy people up. Um, these articles you see floating around right now about us being in a mental health pandemic um, in addition to an actual pandemic, they're absolutely true. I don't know any clinician who doesn't have a wait list. Um, the people that I know that don't have a wait list, they're newer and that's fine. I I think people just need help right now in any way they can Mm -hmm. get. Mm -hmm. So I would say if you have someone you really want to see, if they have a wait list and they're accepting people onto the wait list, get on it. Don't spend time with, oh, I've talked to four people who have a wait list. I can't find someone without one. Get on the wait list. If you Mm -hmm. want to keep looking, great. If you find somebody else, let the person that you're on the wait list for know I'm going a different direction. Um, Or see someone in the meantime and switch when the waiting list therapist opens up. Just go ahead and get on that list if it's an option for you. Um, 
I, I personally have transitioned to a teaching practice, so I I'm still seeing clients, but I'm bringing on clinical interns who want to specialize in the same issues that I do. So I would say, be prepared to see someone who is a clinical intern, because a lot of us are doing that now. There's not enough of us who do this work. And in order to not have crazy long wait lists, (laughs) we need to train other uh, clinicians to do similar work and people being willing to see them is actually a part of that process. So if the therapist you talk to says, I've got an intern you can see rather than, I know it's tempting, right? I've been there, but rather than saying, well, I don't want to see an intern. I want to see someone with X years experience. I I would invite you that if the clinician thinks it's okay clinically for you to see that intern, try the idea on for size that you're, you're helping other people who are experiencing the same issues you are by seeing that intern, um, just like you would at a teaching hospital and at a teaching hospital, they don't even give you an option. Right. <laughs> you come in, the doctor brings the, the residents in, they train them. It's really an important part of, of the experience. Gosh, I never really thought about it that way, Katie. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really what I'm trying to move towards now because we're just desperate. We, everyone I know that does this work is, just drowning in, in referrals. We always have been, but it's getting worse as the pandemic drowns out or drags out. Um, so that's really an important thing we're doing. Um, if you've got to go with somebody else who maybe doesn't specialize, I would say you want to look for people that are trauma informed. So they know a lot about trauma, like childhood trauma or sexual violence, domestic violence, things like that. Trauma in general. Um, I would always recommend a social justice lens and people that are committed to some kind of an anti-oppression framework um, because there's a lot of power dynamics that play out with my clients around um, whether it's race or culture or transnational adoption status. Um, I see a lot of narcissism play out in adoptive families. Are all adoptive families like that? Of course not. But of the people that come to me for therapy, (laughs) it's a lot. And they need a lot of help understanding that what's happening in their family is unjust. Um, It's not just painful, it's unjust. It's it's an injustice against them. Um, And so people that recognize how race and racism can play out in families, because I'm seeing that happen a lot, especially for transracial adoptees. and an intersectional framework. So an understanding of how your identity over here affects your identity over there. So if you are an adopted person who is questioning their sexual orientation and um, also interested in searching for their birth family, there's multiple things there around how do I talk about who I am? Who's safe to talk to? Who can I talk to to about my reality? So an understanding that we all have multiple identities. And so these experiences that we're having are going to affect us in different complicated ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. So where can, you mentioned earlier, these trainings that you're working on, where can people find more information specifically about your work or, you know, if if you think there's other things that they should be following or looking at or whatever. Um, So I have a calendar on my website. It's katieperkins.com, K-A-T-Y. Yes, (laughs) I I keep always reminding myself that when I write it, I'm like, she's Katie Um, with a Y. 
Hi. I'm not remembering the name of the tab off the top of my head, but there is a, an events calendar on my website that people can go to. I've got um, lesson this month, but things listed uh, such as there's a virtual adoptive parent journal group starting in January hosted by the clinical intern, Lauren Butcher. Um, it's a 10 week group online that registration is open for and they can grab early bird registration for that there's a 10-week adoptee uh, adult adoptee virtual journal group starting in i believe february hosted by myself um, and those are all using materials created by dr chaitra Wurdo laker who is a psychologist an adoptee and an adoptive parent based in colorado so we use her materials for those those sessions um, i'm also having a training around adoption competence for professional on November 10th so they can get the registration for that there and anything like that I'm I try to be really good about having that calendar all up to date so you can click on the event and it will also include a link to the registration great oh that's so wonderful well thank you so so much for taking time out of your busy life busy practice you're so welcome thank you for asking me yes thank you very much Bye-bye for now. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.